Growing up, I had this, this dream, this goal, this desire. And it was, it was a small one. It was this. I wanted to be recognized as the world's greatest. Right. I wanted people to look at me and, and see that there was something really kind of special about me. Now, I didn't want to be the world's greatest like person ever. I just thought if there was just one thing, one kind of discipline that I had, it didn't matter if it was, it was ping pong or Pac-Man or playing the banjo or bowling, just as long as I was the world's greatest at that particular thing so that when people saw me, they would recognize me. I'd be known for that. You know, hey, look, there's Brian. Man, is he good at whatever. He's the greatest at that, right? Now, I don't think that I'm alone in that kind of desire and that pursuit. I think a lot of people have this, oh, man, if I was just really good at one thing. And some people pursue that to maybe the extreme. And in their pursuit of that extreme, it has given us the Guinness Book of World Records. Kind of a whole collection of interesting people. Right? Let me sh- show you a few of those this morning. This guy made the Guinness Book of World Records for most rotations hanging from a power drill in one minute. <laughs> you didn't even know that was a record, right? Now, are you ready for how many times? 148. I know, impressive, right? Kids, try this at home. <laughs> Seriously, ask your parents. 148 times. What's the next one here? This gentleman has the largest collection of airsick bags. Right? I know. Aim high. Uh, 6,016 from over 1,000 different airlines and 160 different countries. Right? Airsick bags, but he's the world's greatest. What I like to do actually when I fly is take an airsick bag and then pack my daughter's lunch in it. So feel free. To, to use that one. Um, what do we have here? This one, I wasn't sure if it was impressive or not. The largest collection of gnomes and pixies. Uh, and it's only 2,042. I feel like that's attainable. I feel like we could all pull our gnomes and pixies together and have maybe 12. She, she calls it her gnome reserve. Uh, that's where she has those. What's one more here? <laughs> Who'd have thought, right? Most times hit by a car in two minutes. I don't know why it's two minutes. I don't know why that's the time frame. But I wasn't impressed with this. And maybe I'd have to actually see the video. I couldn't find it. Eight times. Seems attainable, right? I don't recommend it, but it seems attainable. People pursue these things. Now, I do want to tell you this morning that I actually am a Guinness World Record holder. Yes. I know. Surprised, right? It happened on the 6th of October, 2005. Me and 5,983 of my closest friends participated in, and and as the website for Guinness says, the largest simultaneous whoopee cushion sit. (laughs) There you have it. Thank you very much. You kind of feel cooler just knowing me, right? It took years of practice and dedication There's a lot of goofy things that you try and be great at. But for some people, it's an obsession. I read about Olympic athletes one time, and they were were kind of given this question. They were given two options. Would you rather kind of question. And it was this. Would you rather win the gold at the upcoming Olympics, but within the following year pass away? Or would would you rather not win a medal at all, 
and live out the rest of your days. Over 90% of Olympic athletes said, I would rather win the gold and pass away the following year. There's just something about achieving that goal. There's just something about being recognized as the greatest in the world. Now, it's okay to pursue excellence. It's okay to want to be great, but at what? At a certain point, you have to ask yourself, is, is what I'm doing important? Are the things that I'm pursuing to be great, do they even matter? Maybe a better question for us to ask is, what does Jesus view as great? What does Jesus recognize? What does he commend in scripture? And maybe we should be pursuing those things. And that's what we're gonna talk about this morning. We're continuing on in our series, Live It, as we kind of walk through the book of Mark. And last week, Steve did a great job of just kind of opening up to us the passage in the beginning of Mark chapter seven, where Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. And he's telling them, no, listen, you go through the motions, you honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. And Steve talked about how we kind of oftentimes think that we are loved because of our performance, but we're not valuable and then God loves us. God loves us and that makes us valuable. And he also walked us through this kind of preference versus principle, biblical principle issue. And how oftentimes we get our preferences confused for actual principles found in the Bible. And we talked about some of those things and learned about the importance of palettes and worship. He also, the nerve of this guy, also put a picture up of a certain youth pastor on stage in jeans. So this past week, I found several embarrassing pictures of Steve. And I was going to show them to you this morning, but he's my boss, and I like my job. So I've created a website. No, I haven't. I haven't done that. I'm not even sure if he's here this morning. So this week, though, we're going to springboard off of that story, and we're going to talk about one of the things that Jesus recognizes as great. And it's not position, and it's not power, it's not possessions. It's none of those things that oftentimes we usually pursue. It's something else. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Mark chapter 7 this morning. And if you want to grab one out of the pew there, it's on page 1587. Now, this story is also paralleled in Matthew chapter 15. So I'm going to be adding some of the Matthew 15 verses in as we go. And it's kind of going to kind of round out the story a little bit more. There's some information that Matthew gives us. But this is one of those stories. It's just a few verses But it has absolutely huge significance. Mark chapter 7 verse 24 says this. Then Jesus left Galilee. He went north to the region of Tyre. He didn't want anyone to know which house he was staying in. You see, Jesus gathered his disciples with him. And he went north. He was going on a road trip. And what better place to go on a road trip than Tyre? I don't know if you've ever seen Tyre, but this is what it looks like. It's beautiful. And if you're going to take a road trip with your disciples, you might as well go to the beach where it's warm, right? And he was like, guys, I'm a carpenter. I've been working on this thing. Someday they're going to call it a surfboard. Let's go. And they were hanging out under the umbrellas. And just get this picture of Jesus as he, as he headed north. They rented a condo with a great view, kind of gathered everybody around. Now, there's, there's probably a bunch of reasons why Jesus headed north. One was the conversation that he just had with the religious leaders. He, he was pretty harsh with them. And so possibly he was going north to maybe kind of let things settle down so that the air would clear a little bit. He was also getting his disciples away because there were always crowds around. And he needed to teach them. As a matter of fact, verse 17, 
uh, of that same chapter, just another instance. He went into a house to get away from the crowd. He, he kind of pulled his disciples around. There were things that he needed to teach them in the quiet of just them. And probably another very real possibility was that they just needed some rest. They just needed some time away. I mean, if you think about it for Jesus, it must have been absolutely relentless for him. Just all day, every day, people bringing needs to him. Kind of like being a parent. But people bringing very real, deep, serious needs to him. And you know his compassion and you know his heart for people. And so all of these needs all day, every day, combined with his compassion, just had to be a recipe for exhaustion. He just had to be absolutely spent. And so he was taking his disciples and he was getting away. And he took them north because at least if he left the Jewish territory and went into the Gentile territory, at least there would be no interruptions. But we see that he couldn't keep it a secret. Right away, a woman who had heard about him came and fell at his feet. Her little girl was possessed by an evil spirit, and she begged him to cast out the demon from her daughter. He went away to get away, but it couldn't be kept a secret. Where Jesus went, the crowds followed, and this woman came to him. Matthew 15 says that she came and she said this, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David, for my daughter is possessed by a demon that torments her severely. And so she comes to Jesus and she's begging. And the word there for begging just means it's just this continual begging. She just keeps at it. She keeps at it. She's crying out. She's, she's being loud. She's making a scene. She's just stating her case before Jesus. Now, the word that Matthew uses as well is an onomatopoetic phrase, right? Big word. It, it just means that the, the word used in the Greek sounds like the actual action. Like the word buzz sounds like the buzz. It sounds like what it is. The word boom sounds like what it is. Well, the word that's used here is the term for a raven's piercing cry. And the word literally is, is call. So... She comes at Jesus cawing, just this, this determination to get to Jesus, just this, this piercing cry. And we know that there's, there's determination, and then there's desperation, and we know that then there's a mom who has a child that has a need. And so she comes to Jesus with this need. And here's what Matthew adds to the story. Matthew 15, 23 says this, but Jesus gave her no reply, not even a word. And it's interesting, right, that she comes to Jesus with this very deep need. And you know what she gets? Silence. And we understand that, right? And I know that's happened to us. And then it says his disciples urged him to send her away. Tell her to go away, they said. She's bothering us with this persistent begging. Jesus, we're tired. We want to go surfing again. The game's on soon. You were just breaking out the chips and guac. Can she go away, please? Right? She's, her need for the disciples is lost in her approach. The way that she approaches Jesus kind of takes away the need for them. They're just like, oh, please, stop. But Jesus then doesn't say a word. And it's interesting, right? It's interesting that she's met with silence. And, and we're not exactly sure why. Maybe, you know, he was going to test her. Maybe um, it just wasn't his time. We see that in another place in John chapter 2 when they're at the wedding feast and Mary comes to him and she says, 
Jesus, we're, we're out of wine. Do something about it. And he says this, dear woman, that's not our problem. My time has not yet come. You know, maybe it wasn't the time yet for him to kind of begin this ministry to the Gentiles. We don't know, but all we know is that he was silent. Now, it says she was a Gentile born in Syria and Phoenicia. And Gentile really is just a term for, you know, she was not a Jew. She was at that point, you know, kind of outside of that community, outside of that family, outside of that nation. And then verse 27, it says, Jesus told her, first I should feed the children, my own family, the Jews. It isn't right to take food from the children and throw it to the dogs. And that's one of those verses we read in scripture and we go, what? Did Jesus just call her a dog? Because that's just rude. Like, right? Isn't it a little bit confusing? Isn't there a little bit of tension in that verse? Don't you kind of want to get underneath that? Now, we know that the Jews would have called the Gentiles dogs in a derogatory fashion. It was a term that was used. It it meant like wild, scavenger, mangy dog. Not like, what up, dog? But like, you dog. in, In like a really negative way. And we know that the Gentiles would also have derogatory phrases that they would have used for the Jews as well. And and we're not going to repeat any of those derogatory phrases. But here's the thing. When Jesus says dog in this passage, he uses a different word. And I don't know if this makes any difference to you, but he uses the word for puppy, for like house dog, for pet. And and I don't know if that changes it. So he he doesn't use like the scavenger dog. He uses this different word, but there's still a tension in the air, right? I mean, we we can't really get past it. There's, There's still somewhat of a tension. And I don't know, again, is this to see her response? Is this to test her persistence? He says something that's confusing. But what we do know is that he's telling her within a parable that there's an order to things, that there's a way things are going to be done. You see, again, this is a key passage for the Gentiles. And Mark was writing to Roman Christians. He wasn't writing to Jewish people. And as we talked in the overview, they wouldn't understand all of these Jewish customs. They would be reading scripture to find out when Jesus kind of opened the door to everyone to the nations, not just for the Jews. And this is what we're going to find out. You see, if you look at this map, Jesus had taken his disciples north and they had left Jewish territory and they headed into Gentile territory. And and in the story and in the two following stories, he's at Tyre and then he goes to Sidon and then he comes down on the other side of the Sea of Galilee there and into the Decapolis region. And all of that was Gentile territory and he's doing miracles as he goes. But this is kind of the opening of that. But what he's saying in this parable is, My mission is to the Jews first. You see, in Matthew chapter 10, when he sent out the disciples, he sent them to God's lost sheep, the Jews. He actually told them, don't go to the Gentiles. We see in Romans chapter 15, he says, remember that Christ came as a servant to the Jews to show that God is true to the promises he made to their ancestors. Jesus came to be a servant to the Jews because of this promise made in Genesis chapter 12 to Abraham. And God promised Abraham that all nations would be blessed because of him, through him. And so Jesus came to the Jews first. But verse 9 of Romans 15 says, He also came so that the Gentiles might give glory to God for his mercies to them. 
he came for the Gentiles as well. See, Jesus was building a foundation so that the gospel could go to the ends of the earth. Luke 24, it says that his message would be proclaimed in the authority of his name to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. So when Jesus gives this parable, he's saying there's an order to things. It is Jew first, but it is going to spread, and we are going to see that spread. But at this point, she was an outsider. This woman came in as an outsider. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt like an outsider? Have you ever felt like that when you're in a situation and you're just like, I don't belong here? My wife and I took a group of rural western Pennsylvania high school students into inner city Philadelphia one summer. We had worked in this housing project for several years, and so we decided it was time to bring a youth group in, and and we brought this youth group in, and my wife and I were very aware that our skin color wasn't the dominant skin color in this housing project. We were white. They were not. And as we walked in, I noticed all of our students had a little bit of this swagger going on. You know, it didn't hit them yet. They were just like, oh, yeah, you know, they're just used to their settings and their places. And they got, we got in the middle of this housing project, three 18-story high-rise buildings, and we're in this courtyard, and we're going to pray together before we get going. And as I get all the students together, I hear this voice from like three or four balconies up, these kids, and they go, look, white people. (laughs) And that's when it hit our kids. We don't belong here. Or maybe, and they got a little tighter in the circle. <laughs> they wanted me to pray a little bit harder for them because all of a sudden they were outsiders. And maybe you felt like that. Maybe you felt like an outsider because of your race. Maybe you felt like an outsider because you're single and, and everybody else around you seems to be married. Maybe you feel like an outsider because you have a different religious background than other people or educational background or professional background. All of us have had that feeling at one point or another a feeling like an outsider. But here's the beauty of this text, that Jesus is for you. Jesus is for the outsider. And it's so interesting that this passage is linked to the previous one because the previous passage is all about Jesus sharing the truth with religious leaders and they weren't getting it. They were going through the motions, but their hearts weren't in it. But the Gentiles were now going to receive Jesus. They were going to receive the grace of Jesus. They were going to be his children. And Jesus is showing the disciples, and this is the first time that his disciples are actually seeing this. They're the first time that Jesus is going to perform a miracle in front of his disciples to show that the door is opening that way. He's saying, everything I am for the Jews, I am for the Gentiles. I'm the Savior for the Jews, but I am also a Savior for the Gentiles. Jesus is beginning this passage like, I'm not going to play favorites. And so this is a big deal. This is the beginning of a movement for the disciples in their minds. It's also a big deal for this woman because there's a moment here for her as well. When Jesus says it isn't right to take food from the children and throw it to the dogs, it's a defining moment for her. You see, she's come to Jesus and, and she's met with silence. And then the followers of Jesus want to get rid of her. And then the answer that she's given to all of her pleading is confusing. It's not that encouraging. So what's she going to do in this moment? Because she can respond in a bunch of different ways. She could respond in pride, right? 
She could respond, how dare you give me the silent treatment? Or I don't have to stand for this. I don't need your attitude. I don't need you. If that's how you wanna be, I'm going somewhere else. Have you ever had one of those moments where you feel like somebody said something to you and it's just bristled, something inside of you has just bristled and, and you just get this like, don't you disrespect me kind of sassy? Yes. I love to play basketball. I used to play basketball all the time. Every day in the summer that I could play, I'd go to the courts outside and play. Now, there was courts where um, the decent kids played, and then there was courts where the really good kids played, and I always went to those courts where the really good kids played. And what you do when you, when you roll up to the court by yourself is you got to figure out who has next, who's got the next game, who's got next. So you ask everybody, who's got next, who's got next? And when you find out who has the next game, you need one. You need one, and so you'd always find that guy who had next and to see if he had a full team. You need one, and invariably, it would always, I'd be like, you need one? And they'd be like, yeah, not you, though. I need one, just not you. See, I haven't always been this physically imposing. <laughs> Hard to believe, but I grew up a little skinny, a little scrawny, right? And so invariably, I heard at the basketball court, all right, I'll take the little guy. I'll take the scrawny kid. I'll take the short kid, right? And now I, my response could have just been pride. It could have been anger. Don't you call me that. I'm kick you in the shin and punch you in the stomach. It's all higher I can reach, <laughs> right? That could have been my response. But my goal was to get on the court. But I think there are times that we won't come to Jesus because we feel like, Nah, I don't, I don't have to stand for that. Or I'm doing okay on my own. Or, you know, honestly, Jesus, I don't need to feel any worse about myself than I already do. And so we walk away pridefully. You know, I think the other response could have been this. She could have felt too lowly to accept his offer, right? You're right, I'm not good enough. I don't deserve your mercy. What I've done is too bad for even you. You couldn't love me. In that basketball court, I could have been like, you're right, I'm short, scrawny. You got an attitude problem. I have an altitude problem. I'm out. Just walked away. You know, sometimes I feel like we just think our sin has just reached such a height that even Jesus can't overlook it. That we know that there's forgiveness verses in the Bible, but those forgiveness verses are for other people. They're not for us. I mean, at one point in my life, I received forgiveness, and then I put my faith in Jesus. And, but every sin from there on out, I mean, that seems to be a little bit weightier. And so we don't come to Jesus, and we distance ourselves from him just because we feel like things have piled up. John Newton, who was a pastor, abolitionist, who, who penned Amazing Grace, he said this, You say it's hard to understand how a holy God could accept such an awful person as yourself. You then express not only a low opinion of yourself, which is right, but also too low an opinion of the person, work, and promises of the Redeemer, which is wrong. You see, when we don't come to Jesus because we feel like, oh, we've just messed up too much, what are we saying about who he is? What are we saying about his sacrifice? What are we saying about the work that he did? She could have responded in pride or she could have responded in this self-deprecation, but I think she saw a little bit of the gospel in this moment. You know, maybe she came in and she just saw that, hey, you know, I'm probably worse than I thought. But you know what? At the same time, I'm more loved and accepted than I ever dared hope. 
And the beauty of what she says back to Jesus is amazing. She replied, that's true, Lord. But even the dogs under the table are allowed to eat the scraps from the children's plates. Interesting response, right? She comes to Jesus and she's like, I'm going to keep pressing in. It's more about what you didn't say than what you did say. Because you didn't say, go home. So you're saying there's a chance, right? And she saw that maybe Jesus is good even when my reason doesn't exactly see it. And you know what the beauty of this story is? She gets it. And she's the first one in the Gospels that gets a parable of Jesus. The disciples were always asking Jesus, what does that mean? The religious leaders didn't get it. She gets it. She's the first one to answer back to Jesus with parable language. She's the first person to answer Jesus back within the parable. This outsider, this woman, this Gentile, this one that other people wanted to dismiss, she gets it. You see, we come to Jesus and we have all this about our rights. We believe in our rights. This is what I'm owed. This is what I deserve. But this woman isn't saying that at all. She isn't saying, give me this on the basis of what I deserve. She's saying, give me this on the basis of your goodness. And the whole meal that the the Jewish people aren't really partaking in, I'm satisfied with just a crumb. And she gets it. And Jesus loves that she gets it. He says, good answer. Now go home for the demon has left your daughter. Good answer. Matthew 15, 28, he says, dear woman, your faith is great. Your request is granted. And her daughter was instantly healed. What does Jesus recognize as great? Her faith. When Jesus recognizes greatness, it's this faith in him. It's this trust in him. It's all through scripture. When we see in Matthew 8, the centurion. When we see in Luke 17, the leper. Luke 18, the blind man. He commends their faith. Now here's a question for you. Where did she get this faith? Where did this outsider, this Gentile, this one from a different part of the world get this faith? Verse 25. Right away, a woman who had heard about him. She got her faith because she had heard about him. Because someone told her. She comes in, she calls him Lord, she calls him Son of David. Because that's what someone told her about who this was. Romans 10 says, faith comes from hearing. Hearing the good news about Christ. She had her moment with Jesus. She had this amazing healing of her daughter. She got to be a part of this gate starting to swing wide for the Gentiles because someone told her. And I want to remind you this morning that there is power in the telling, that faith spreads in the telling, that there is power in your testimonies. We talk about a city at peace with God. And the way that we get a city at peace with God is sharing our faith stories. And I know we always discount those and we're always a little bit nervous about that. But God works through the telling. Faith comes through hearing. And so I challenge us again to be willing and to be courageous, to be bold enough to share our faith stories, to share just who Jesus is and what he's doing and what he's doing in our lives. The other thing I would encourage you in is is just continue to lean in. 
no matter what the circumstance looks like. And that just means continue to work out your faith in trust and humility. That's what happened here. You see, we have a miracle story here. It is the book of Mark. And as we talked about in the overview, Mark is just talking about action figure Jesus. That he is just going miracle to miracle to miracle. And we're just getting all these things. And and it is amazing. And it would be really easy for us to say, well, guess what? Have faith and it's all going to work out for you. And Steve talked about it a couple weeks ago, that temptation to preach, everything goes better with Jesus. But the reality is is sometimes we don't get the solution that we're seeking to our very real problems and our very difficult situations. And that doesn't mean that Jesus is any less good. It just means that we don't see the whole picture. You see, faith isn't a vehicle for us to get the things we want. Faith is a trust, a belief, and a confidence in Jesus that he is good, that he loves us with an everlasting love, that his purpose will stand even when we don't get what we want. So I find myself often praying, Jesus, I don't get it, but I trust you. I don't get it. Too often we try and make sense of things that make no sense, and they're not going to make sense to us. And so we continue to lean into him and we continue to put our faith in him no matter what the circumstance looks like. For this woman, it was silence. Maybe you're met with silence. Continue to lean in. Maybe it's other people saying, go a different direction. Continue to lean in. Maybe it's confusing. Maybe it's not encouraging at the moment. Continue to lean in. I love that when Jesus did this miracle, he healed her, but the mom didn't know till she got home and she didn't just drag Jesus with her. I am not letting you go. She trusted She believed. She didn't get the answer until she was home. She didn't see it until she was home. Continue to lean in. I read a quote this past week. It's going to be up on the screen. Thomas Aquinas said this, To one who has faith, no explanation is necessary. To one without faith, no explanation is possible. Maybe that's a good gauge for us. How much explanation do we need when circumstances happen? Do you trust enough to say, I don't get it, but I trust you? You don't have to explain it. Because the other side of that is we we understand that. There aren't enough explanations for situations. Not that will satisfy us. And so we pray as the disciples prayed. Increase our faith. Teach us to increase our faith.